0: Chapter 2 of Indian Frontier Policy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Indian Frontier Policy An Historical Sketch by General Sir John Adai, GCB, RA. Chapter 2 Events Prior and Leading Up to the Second Afghan War covering the conquest of Kiva, Bukhara and Kokand by Russia, British conquest of Sindh and the Punjab, our policy with the frontier tribes, the Treaty of 1857 with Dost Mohammed Shir Ali succeeds as Amir, 1868, the War of 1878, Abdul Rahman becomes Amir, withdrawal of British army from Afghanistan, 1881. For a few years subsequent to the war, our foreign policy happily remained free from complications, and it will be desirable now to refer shortly to the progress of Russia in Central Asia, and of her conquests of the decaying principalities of Kiva, Bukhara, and Kokand. Previous to 1847, the old boundary line of Russia, south of Orenburg, abutted on the great Kirghiz steppe, a zone, as the late Sir H. Rawlinson told us, of almost uninhabited desert, stretching two thousand miles from west to east, and nearly one thousand from north to south, which had hitherto acted as a buffer between Russia and the Mohammedan principalities below the Aral. Footnote. Parliamentary Papers, Afghanistan, 1878. Quote. It was in 1847, contemporaneously with our final conquest of the Punjab, that the curtain rose on the aggressive Russian drama in Central Asia, which is not yet played out. Russia had enjoyed the nominal dependency of the Kirghiz Cossacks of the little horde who inhabited the western division of the Great Steppe since 1730, but, except in the immediate vicinity of the Orenburg line, she had little real control over the tribes. In 1847-48, to however, she erected three important fortresses in the very heart of the steppe. These important works, the only permanent constructions which had hitherto been attempted south of the line, enabled Russia for the first time to dominate the western portion of the steppe, and to command the great routes of communication with Central Asia. But the steppe forts were, after all, a mere means to an end, they formed the connecting link between the old frontiers of the Empire and the long-coveted line of the jaksertis and simultaneously with their erection arose Fort Aralsk, near the embouchure of the river. Unquote. Footnote. Extract from Quarterly Review, October 1865. The Russians, having thus crossed the great desert tract and established themselves on the jaksertis Sir Daria, from that time came permanently into contact with the three khanates of Central Asia, and their progress since that date has been comparatively easy and rapid. The principalities had no military organization which would enable them to withstand a great power. Their troops and those of Russia were frequently in conflict of late years, but the battles were in a military sense trivial, AND THE BROAD RESULT IS THAT RUSSIA HAS BEEN FOR SOME YEARS PREDOMINANT THROUGHOUT THE WHOLE REGION, AND HER FRONTIERS ARE NOW CONTINUOUS WITH THE northern PROVINCES OF BOTH AFGHANISTAN AND PERSIA. IT IS THIS LATTER POINT WHICH IS THE IMPORTANT ONE, SO FAR AS WE ARE CONCERNED, BUT BEFORE ENTERING INTO ITS DETAILS IT WILL BE WELL TO CONSIDER THE NATURE OF THE GREAT COUNTRY OVER WHICH RUSSIA NOW RULES. Until within the last few years, our information as to its general character was very limited, but the accounts of numerous recent travellers all concur in describing it as consisting for the most part of sterile deserts deficient in food, forage, fuel, and water. There are a certain number of decayed ancient cities here and there, and there are occasional oases of limited fertility, but the general conditions are as just described." With the exception of the one railway from the caspian to samarkand the means of transport are chiefly pack animals speaking roughly the dominions of russia in central asia south of orenburg may be taken as almost equal in geographical extent to those of our indian empire but there is this striking difference between the two that whilst the population of india is computed at two hundred and fifty millions that of Central Asia, even at the highest computation, is only reckoned at four or five millions, of whom nearly half are nomadic, that is, they wander about not from choice, but in search of food and pasturage. The extreme scantiness of the population is of itself a rough measure of the general desolation. The military position of Russia in Central Asia, therefore, is that of a great but distant power, which during the last fifty years has overrun and taken possession of extended territories belonging to fanatical Mohammedan tribes. The people themselves are, many of them, warlike and hostile, but they are badly armed, have no discipline, training or leaders, and are not therefore in a position to withstand the advance of regular troops. Consequently, Russia is enabled to hold the country with a comparatively small force of scattered detachments, which are, however, supplied with arms, munitions, and stores under great difficulties from far distant centres, and her troops are practically incapable of concentration. Indeed, the farther they go, the weaker they become, the very magnitude of the area being an additional cause of weakness. This is a condition somewhat precarious in itself, and would certainly not appear to be an alarming one, as a basis of attack against our empire, even were India close at hand while russia however was completing the subjugation of the principalities and advancing her frontiers until they became conterminous with the northern provinces of afghanistan and persia the government of india by the great wars of eighteen forty three and forty nine having annexed sindh and the punjab advanced our frontiers in a similar manner so that the people both of Baluchistan and afghanistan hitherto far remote from our dominions now became our neighbours in the life of sir robert Sandeman, recently published a very interesting account is given not only of the nature of the country along the border but of the policy pursued for many years with the independent tribes it says quote by the conquest of sindh in eighteen forty three and the annexation of the punjab in eighteen forty nine the northwest frontier of India was advanced across the river Indus to the foot of the rocky mountains which separate the plains of the Indus Valley from the higher plateaus of Afghanistan and Kelat. These mountain ranges formed a vast irregular belt of independent or semi-independent territory, extending from Kashmir southward to the sea near Karachi, a total length of about twelve hundred miles. Unquote the belt of territory above described was quote, inhabited by fierce marauding tribes often at war with each other ever and anon harrying the plains of punjab and Sind, and the constant terror of the trade caravans during their journey through the passes unquote. the policy pursued for many years is thus described quote, the disasters of the first afghan war and the tragical episode of Kallat, were fresh in men's recollections, and created a strong feeling against political interference with tribes beyond our border. Accordingly, from the very first, the system of border defence maintained by the Punjab government was not purely military, but partly military, partly political and conciliatory. While the passes were carefully watched, every means was taken for the promotion of friendly intercourse." Unquote. Roads were made, steamers started on the Indus, and inundation canals developed along the border. So long as they were friendly, the tribesmen had free access to our territory, could hold land, enlist in our army, and make free use of our markets. As a result, the deadly hatred formerly prevailing between the Sikhs and the hill tribes soon disappeared. Raids became exceptional, cultivation increased. The bazaars of our frontier stations teemed with Afghans, with trains of laden camels, who at the close of the season returned laden with our goods. Disputes were voluntarily referred by independent tribesmen for the arbitration of British officers. Such, it is stated in the life of Sir Robert Sanderman, were the results of Lawrence's frontier policy, and no words are required to emphasise these excellent arrangements which remained in force for many years before leaving this part of the subject it may be as well to anticipate a little, and to allude to the successful part taken by Sir Robert Sandman in 1876 on his appointment as our agent to the Khan of Kalat. It is important in the first place to mention that whilst in Afghanistan the tribes all along the frontier were for the most part independent of the Emir of Kabul, and were ruled by their own jirgas or councils, in Baluchistan, the mode of government was so far different that the chiefs, whilst acknowledging the Khan as their hereditary ruler, were entitled not only to govern their own tribes, but to take part in the general administration of the country as the constitutional advisers of the paramount chief. The dangers arising from the vicinity of three powerful kingdoms, Persia, Afghanistan and Sindh, had no doubt led them to perceive the necessity of cooperation, which was established about the middle of the 18th century. Although the Constitution, as above described, secured to the Confederated Tribes nearly a century of prosperity and peaceful government, it so happened that for some years before 1876, owing to the weakness of the then ruler, and partly to turbulence of the chiefs, the government of the country fell into disorder, and the commerce through the Bolan Pass altogether ceased. From 1872 to 1876, Lord Northbrook was Viceroy of India, and one of his last acts before leaving was the appointment of Colonel Sandman as our envoy, with a view to mediate between the Khan and his subordinates, and which proved successful. The principal terms which were finally accepted by the Khan and his tribal chiefs were— that their foreign policy was to be under our guidance, and we were also to be the referee in case of internal disputes, that the commerce of the Bolan was to be opened and protected, the annual subsidy hitherto granted to the Khan of £5,000 being doubled to cover the necessary expenditure, and finally that a British agent with a suitable contingent should be established at Quetta it is important to observe that the negotiations were conducted throughout in a spirit of cooperation, and that their beneficial results remain in force to the present day. The policy pursued for many years on the Afghan frontier, although regulated by the same general principles as in Kilat, was not altogether so rapidly accomplished or so entirely successful. The circumstances were in some degree different and less simple. In the first place the frontier was eight hundred miles long, and was inhabited by Afghan tribes who were more predatory and intractable than the Baluchis. They were not only independent of each other, but for the most part acknowledged no allegiance to the Amir of Kabul. Border disputes, therefore, had to be settled with individual chiefs, and no opportunity was offered for our mediation in internal feuds or for joint agreement on external policy as was so successfully accomplished by Sandeman in Baluchistan, there was no general federation with which we could enter into negotiation. As a consequence, we were compelled to maintain a large force and fortified posts along the frontier, and many punitive expeditions became necessary from time to time against lawless offending tribes. Still, on the whole, and considering the difficulties of the situation, the policy of conciliation, subsidies, and of non-interference with their internal affairs gradually succeeded. Raids, once chronic, became exceptional, and were dealt with rather as matters of frontier policy than of war. Footnote. See Parliamentary Papers, Afghanistan, 1878, page 30, and Baluchistan, number 3, 1878 it must also be remembered as an additional complication that in annexing the punjab although it is essentially the country of the sikhs who are hindus the inhabitants of the trans indus districts are for the most part what are termed punjabi musulmen that is afghans in race religion and language from what has been said as to our dealings with the border tribes it will be evident that while our difficulties were continuous and often serious still they were chiefly local, and that the defence of the empire on that frontier, against foreign aggression, depended in a great measure on our relations with the ruler of Afghanistan itself. When Dost Mohammed, after the Great War, returned in 1843 to his former position as emir of that distracted country, it was hardly to be expected that, although acquiescing in his reinstatement, we should be regarded by him in a friendly light." still some years passed away without any important change in our relative positions one way or the other in eighteen fifty five lord dalhousie was governor-general and a treaty was made with dost mohammed by which both parties agreed to respect each other's territories in january eighteen fifty seven a still more important one followed we were then once more at war with persia and at a meeting between sir john lawrence and the emir an agreement was entered into that Dost Mohammed, acting in cooperation with us, should receive ten thousand pounds a month for military purposes, to continue during the war, that English officers should reside in his country temporarily, to keep the Indian government informed, but not to interfere with the administration, and that when peace ensued, they should be withdrawn, and a native agent alone remain as our representative. Footnote. In view of the strong objection to the presence of English officers in Afghanistan, Sir John Lawrence intimated to the Viceroy of India that he had given an assurance to Dost Muhammad that it should not be enforced unless imperatively necessary. End it is important to note that this friendly treaty was made at Peshawar, just before the great mutiny, and that the emir though urged by his people to attack us in our hour of danger, remained faithful and would not allow them to cross the border. Dost Mohammed died in June 1863, and for some years after his death family feuds and intestine wars occurred as to his successor, during which we carefully abstained from interference and were prepared to acknowledge the de facto ruler. Ultimately, in 1868, his son Shir Ali, Established his authority in Afghanistan, and was acknowledged accordingly. Lord Lawrence was then the Viceroy, and in a dispatch to the Secretary of State, expressed his views as regards the advances of Russia. After pointing out that they were now paramount in Central Asia, he suggested a mutual agreement as to our respective spheres and relations with the tribes and nations with whom we were now both in contact and he went on to welcome the civilising effect of russian government over the wild tribes of the steppes and pointed out that if russia were assured of our loyal feeling in these matters she would have no jealousy in regard of our alliance with the afghans the secretary of state sir stafford northcote replied quote, that the conquests which russia had made and apparently is still making in central asia appear to be the natural result of the circumstances in which she finds herself placed and to afford no ground whatever for representations indicative of suspicion or alarm on the part of this country Unquote. It is a great misfortune that such sensible, conciliatory views did not continue to guide our policy in the events which, a few years later, led us into the Second Great War in Afghanistan. Shia Ali did not inherit the great qualities of his father, and was also somewhat discontented that we had not abetted his cause during the internal troubles in Afghanistan. However, in 1869 he met Lord Mayo at Umbala and after careful discussion it was agreed that we should abstain from sending british officers across the frontier and from interfering in afghan affairs that our desire was that a strong friendly and independent government should be established in that country it was further decided to give shir ali considerable pecuniary assistance and presence of arms from time to time the emir while gratified at these results, wished us also to give a dynastic pledge as to his lineal descendants, which, however, was not acceded to. In 1873 Lord Northbrook was Viceroy of India, and a further conference took place at Simla with the Amir's Prime Minister, chiefly as to the northern Afghan frontier in Badakhstan and Wakhan, which were at the time somewhat uncertain, and a matter of dispute with Russia. This somewhat delicate question was, however, settled in a friendly manner by Lord Granville, then Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. Prince Gorchakov's final dispatch to him on the subject was as follows. Footnote. Central Asia, 1873, circa 699. Quote, the divergence which existed in our views was with regard to the frontiers assigned to the dominion of Shir ali The English government includes within them Badakhstan and Wakhan, which, according to our views, enjoyed a certain independence. Considering the difficulty experienced in establishing the facts in all their details in these distant parts, considering the greater facilities which the British government possesses for collecting precise detail, and above all considering our wish not to give to this question of detail greater importance than is due to it, we do not refuse to accept the boundary-line laid down by England." We are the more inclined to this act of courtesy, as the English government engages to use all its influence with Shir Ali in order to induce him to maintain a peaceful attitude, as well as to insist on his giving up all measures of aggression or further conquest. This influence is indisputable. It is based not only on the material and moral ascendancy of England, but also on the subsidies for which Shir Ali is indebted to her. Such being the case, we see in this assurance a real guarantee for the maintenance of peace. Unquote. Prince Gorchakov admitted more than once that the Emperor of Russia looked upon Afghanistan as completely outside the sphere of Russian influence, and within that of ours, at the same time claiming similar independence for Russia in Central Asia. During the next few years, subsequent to the similar conference, Shir Ali, though he had received considerable assistance from us, both in money and arms, was not altogether satisfied, and one or two incidents occurred during that period which gave him umbrage. Lord Northbrook, the Viceroy in 1875, was not unaware of the somewhat cold and capricious spirit of the emir, but in writing to London he pointed out that Shir Ali's situation was difficult, not only from the risk of revolution at home, but also of attack from abroad, and that on the whole he was to be relied on. A change, however, was coming over the scene, and our policy reverted from conciliation to compulsion. It was a critical period in the history of frontier policy, and demands careful consideration. It must not be forgotten that, although amongst those best qualified to judge the majority had long been opposed to advance and conquest in territories beyond our northwest frontier and entertained but little fear of russian aggressive power still there were others men of long experience who had filled high positions in india who held different views and it is probable that not only successive british governments but the public generally who have no time for carefully weighing the diverse aspects of the subject, were influenced sometimes one way, sometimes another. In the many difficulties connected with our world-wide empire, this must always be more or less the case. For instance, the late Sir H. Rawlinson, a few years before the Second Afghan War, took a very alarmist view of the progress of Russia, not only in Central Asia, but also in Asia Minor, he considered that her advance from Orenburg was only part of one great scheme of invasion, and he averred that the conquest of the Caucasus had given her such a strong position that there was no military or physical obstacle to the continuous march of Russia, from the Arexes to the Indus. Footnote, Parliamentary Papers, Afghanistan, 1878. He described it as the unerring certainty of a law of nature— but throughout he ignores distances blots out the mountains deserts and arid plains of persia and afghanistan and takes no account of the warlike races who would bar the path it requires a very large map to embrace all the details of this widespread strategy some account has already been given of the weakness in a military point of view of russia in central asia and of the distance of her scattered troops from the main resources of the empire but in addition it must be remembered that the mountains of afghanistan also form a natural and enduring barrier against a further advance the great hindu kush range running all along the northern part of that country forms indeed the real scientific frontier between the two empires a few passes over its snowy crests, ranging from 12,000 to 18,000 feet high, and only open for a few months in the year. Another supposed line of advance for a Russian army, namely by the Pamirs, has of late years been brought forward, but its main features are more discouraging than those of any other. This elevated region consists of a mass of bare, snow-capped mountains, attaining elevations of over 25,000 feet, intersected by a plateau almost as devoid of vegetation as the mountains themselves. The lakes are about 12,000 feet above sea level. The population is scanty and consists chiefly of nomads in search of food and pasture during the short summer so that although the Russians might, if unopposed, possibly move in small isolated detachments carrying their own food and munitions over the Pamirs, it would only be to lose themselves in the gorges of the Himalayas. The conditions above mentioned are for the most part permanent. Russia may not, and probably has not, any intention of trying to invade and conquer India, but she has not the power which is a far more important consideration to return to the position of affairs previous to the second afghan war footnote see afghanistan eighteen seventy eight published by the secretary of state for india pages one to eight and following early in eighteen seventy five lord northbrook the governor-general received a dispatch from the government at home pointing out that the information received from Afghanistan, not only in respect to internal intrigues, but also as regards the influence of foreign powers, was scanty, and not always trustworthy. He was therefore instructed to procure the assent of the Amir to the establishment of a British agency at Herat, and also at Kandahar. The Viceroy of India, and his council, having consulted various experienced officers on the subject, replied in June, that, in their opinion, the present time and circumstances were unsuitable for taking the initiative. They pointed out that the Sirdars and many of the people of Afghanistan would strongly object, and that in the emir's somewhat insecure position he could not afford to disregard their feelings in the matter. They advised patience and conciliation." in november eighteen seventy five a second dispatch was received from england reiterating the necessity of more complete information as to afghanistan especially in view of recent russian advances in central asia and the viceroy was directed to send a mission to Kabul without delay to confer with the emir on central asia and requesting that british officers should be placed on the frontier to watch the course of events the government of india in january eighteen seventy six again urged the undesirability of forcing the hands of the emir and pointed out that his objections to english officers were not from a feeling of disloyalty and that to force his hands was not desirable they did not apprehend any desire of interference on the part of russia and they concluded by alluding to the careful conciliatory policy carried out by lords canning lawrence and mayo as giving the best promise of peace, and satisfactory results in Afghanistan. Consequently, they deprecated the proposed action by the Home Government, in forcing British officers upon shir Ali. In April 1876, Lord Northbrook quitted India, and was succeeded by Lord Lytton, and a further reply from Lord Salisbury, the Secretary of State for India, was received by the Viceroy. It reiterated that the Government at Home considered our trans-frontier relations unsatisfactory, that permanent British agencies should be established in Afghanistan, and that we were willing to afford the Amir material support against unprovoked aggression, our object being to maintain a strong and friendly power in that country. The dispatch went on to say that should the Amir decline to meet our request, he should be informed that he was isolating himself from us at his peril." The next step was taken in May, when the Amir was invited to receive a special mission, which he politely declined. In October, our native agent at Kabul came to Simla, and had an interview with Lord Lytton, who reiterated the demands of the British government, pointing out that in the event of a refusal there was nothing to prevent our joining Russia in wiping Afghanistan out of the map altogether, of which Shir Ali was duly informed in january eighteen seventy seven a final effort was made to come to terms and sir Louis pelly and the afghan prime minister noor mohammed had a conference at peshawar the first and indeed the only point discussed was the demand that british representatives should reside in afghanistan which was a sine qua non nor Mohammed pathetically pleaded that Lords Lawrence, Mayo, and Northbrook, successive viceroys, had all in turn promised that this should not be insisted on, and he ended by saying that Shir Ali would rather perish than submit. It was evident that further discussion was useless, and the conference was closed. Nor Mohammed, who was ill, dying shortly afterwards. In March 1887 our native agent at Kabul was withdrawn, and direct communication with Shir Ali ceased. I have given above résumé of the correspondence in 1875-77, to and of the abortive efforts to induce the Emir to comply with our demands, because it is evident that if he continued to resist, compulsion must almost inevitably ensue. At about the same time, Quetta, in the Bolam, was occupied by a considerable British force, which was naturally regarded as a threat on Afghanistan. A concentration of troops also took place in the northern Punjab, and preparations were made for the construction of bridges over the Indus. All these were indications of coming war. It must also be noted that our relations with Russia in Europe were much strained at the time, so that probably the preparations in india were in some degree due to the apprehension of war in other parts of the world in the summer of eighteen seventy eight a russian envoy arrived at kabul which under the circumstances is hardly to be wondered at some months however elapsed and it was not until november eighteen seventy eight that war was declared lord lytton the viceroy in his proclamation stated quote, that for ten years we had been friendly to Shir Ali, had assisted him with money and arms, and had secured for him formal recognition of his northern frontier by Russia. Unquote. It went on to state that in return he had requited us with active ill-will, had closed the passes and allowed British traders to be plundered, and had endeavoured to stir up religious hatred against us. It then pointed out that whilst refusing a British mission, he had received one from Russia, and ended by saying that we had no quarrel with the Afghans, but only with Sheer Ali himself. From official correspondence published subsequently, footnote, Parliamentary Papers, Afghanistan, 1881, Number Two, Chapter Two, Eight One One. It appeared that in entering Afghanistan, our chief object at the outset was to establish what was called a strategical triangle by the occupation of Kabul, Guzni, and Jalalabad. And it was stated that by holding this position, entrenched behind a rampart of mountains, we should have the power of debouching on the plains of the Oxus against Russia and Central Asia. It is difficult, said Lord Lytton, to imagine a more commanding strategical position. The events of war, however, soon put an end to this somewhat fanciful strategy." In November 1878, the British forces entered the country by three main routes, the Khyber, the Koram, and the Bolam, and hard fighting at once ensued on the two northern ones. The results were immediate. Shir Ali fled northwards and died soon after. His son, Yaqub Khan, assumed temporarily the position of Amir, but in the convulsed state of the country he possessed little real power or authority in may eighteen seventy nine he met the british authorities at Gundamuk, and after considerable consideration signed a treaty the chief points of which were as follows the foreign affairs of afghanistan were to be under our guidance and we undertook to support the emir against foreign aggression british agents were to reside in the country the Korum, pishin and sibi valleys were assigned to the british government and finally yakub khan was to receive an annual subsidy of sixty thousand pounds. So far it would appear as if the campaign had at once realized the main objects of British policy, but tragic events rapidly followed, active hostilities were resumed, and the Treaty of Gundamuk became mere waste paper. As a result of the treaty, Sir Louis Cavagnari, footnote, Afghanistan, eighteen eighty one, number one was appointed our envoy, and, accompanied by a few officers and a small escort, arrived at Kabul in July, being received in a friendly manner by the Emir, although influences adverse to his presence in the capital soon became apparent. Suddenly, on September the 3rd, the British residency was attacked by several Afghan regiments, and after a desperate resistance, Kavignari, and the whole of his officers and escort, perished. This deplorable event, of course, upset all previous arrangements and led to an immediate resumption of hostilities. Our troops at once advanced and captured Kabul, Yakub Khan voluntarily abdicating and becoming an exile in India. Guzni also was occupied shortly afterwards by our advance from Kandahar. The government in India, in a dispatch in January 1880, pointed out that, in view of the complete change in the political situation, it was necessary in the first place fully to establish our military position in the country. They acknowledged that the hopes entertained of establishing a strong, friendly, and independent kingdom on our frontier had collapsed, and that Afghanistan had fallen to pieces at the first blow, its provinces being now disconnected and masterless." in view of these unexpected results they went on to recommend the permanent separation of the provinces under separate rulers and having regard to the special difficulties connected with herat advocated its being handed over to persia this was indeed a policy of despair lord hartington who had become secretary of state for india writing in may eighteen eighty summed up the situation as follows quote, it appears that as the result of two successful campaigns, of the employment of an enormous force, and of the expenditure of large sums of money, all that has yet been accomplished has been the disintegration of the State which it was desired to see strong, friendly, and independent, the assumption of fresh and unwelcome liabilities in regard to one of its provinces, and a condition of anarchy throughout the remainder of the country." Unquote long and careful consideration was naturally given to the solution of the difficulty in which this country found itself owing to the untoward circumstances just related two important decisions were however ultimately arrived at footnote afghanistan eighteen eighty one number one one that authority in afghanistan and the unity of its provinces should as far as possible be restored by the appointment of a new emir and Abdul Rahman, a nephew of Shir Ali, who had been for twelve years in exile in Bukhara, was invited to Kabul, and was supported by us in assuming the title. The chief conditions were that his foreign policy was to be under our guidance, that no English officers were to reside as our representatives in Afghanistan, and that he was to receive a subsidy. 2 that the British troops should be withdrawn as soon as the pacification of the country would permit. This decision was recommended not only by the Viceroy, the Marquis of Ripon, but by the higher officers who had held command during the war. Sir Donald Stuart, who was in chief command, and Sir Frederick Roberts, both concurred in our withdrawal from the country. The Khyber Pass was to be held by subsidised tribes, and the Coram Valley to be altogether abandoned the independence of the tribes being in each case recognised. Sir John Watson, who was in command in that valley, pointed out that as a route from India into Afghanistan it was practically useless. As a further argument in favour of withdrawal, it may be well to allude to the fact that the men of our native regiments were sick of serving in Afghanistan far away from their homes, and that it would be impolitic to keep them there. Some differences of opinion existed as to whether we should relinquish possession of Kandahar, but as it was four hundred miles from the Indus, in a foreign country, and as our remaining there would not only be hateful to the Afghans, but in a military sense would be dangerous and costly, its final abandonment was decided on, the valley of Pishin between Kandahar and Quetta being alone retained by the British government. So ended the Great War of eighteen seventy eight to eighty At its close, we had over seventy thousand men in Afghanistan or on the border in reserve and Even then, we really only held the territory within range of our guns. The whole country had been disintegrated and was in anarchy whilst the total cost of the war exceeded twenty million sterling, being about the same amount as had been expended in the former Great War of eighteen thirty nine to forty one the military operations in themselves had been conducted throughout with great skill in a most difficult country, and the troops, both British and native, had proved themselves admirable soldiers. But as regards the policy which led us into war, it appears to have been as unjust in principle as it was unfortunate in result. The facts, however, speak for themselves. End of chapter 2